Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. this podcast we will look at India. Although we hear much about how the Chinese economy is shaping future growth, India is in some ways even more interesting as it has a far younger population who might drive global economic growth for many decades to come. We speak with Munguntan Siva, founder and managing director of India Avenue Investment Manager. He is not only a fund manager, but also spent a significant part of his career as an asset allocator at ING and later ANZ. He understands what institutional investors look for in equity markets. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Munguntan Siva, welcome to the i3 podcast. Now, before we start, um, some of our listeners might not be familiar with your background. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started? Um, you, you spent a lot, large part of your career with uh, ING Investment Management, and in particular with the multi-manager Optimix business, um, which later was transferred to ANZ. But then you decided to focus on the Indian market. What made you make that choice? Yeah, so if you go back uh, over my career, I've spent most of my working time in Sydney, um, as part of that, I worked for financial planning, stockbroking firms, but spent a lot of my time in an institutional superannuation fund, uh, essentially as an allocator of assets um, in a multi-manager philosophy. As part of working for ING, uh, in 2005, they approached me and said they'd like to build a business in India. Um, so I um, joined that startup team as a chief investment officer, moved my family uh, to Mumbai, and we lived in Mumbai for three years. We built product for uh, local Indian clients uh, and competed in the Indian asset management space. And we uh, also built the capability to allow ING in Australia uh, to invest into India with a direct structure. So essentially that's what created the interest uh, for me and living and operating in that market, building a network and understanding the growth opportunity is really what uh, spurred me to want to come back to Australia and then uh, build upon what was really quite nascent as a country in appreciation of India. Mm. So was that the first time you worked in India? Yeah, that was. So from uh, 2005 uh, towards uh, middle of 2008, that was the first time I'd worked, lived in India. Yeah. And so what prompted you to set up uh, India Avenue? Yeah, so it's very much off the back of that thematic that uh, we felt 
uh, investors in Australia typically tend not to invest in single country funds. Uh, this is more a function of uh, lack of information, a lack of knowledge about what might drive those markets, and we felt India Avenue would be a great conduit to provide information, research, knowledge, and investment solutions as well. Yeah, yeah. You raised that issue of the single country allocation, and um, even today we hear a lot about China, but not too many people allocate to even that as a separate uh, country. So, why why do you think that is, and is that still relevant in today's world? Yeah, look, I think China uh, has been a low-hanging fruit for most Australians in terms of understanding. Australia is a commodity exporter. China has required commodities to essentially drive its growth, uh, and it's been a manufacturing industry-driven growth, which requires is quite commodity intensive. So essentially, uh, in the papers, in the press, in politics, we tend to hear a lot about China's impact on Australia. India has been a little bit more difficult to determine what that direct relationship is. Uh, in future, it could look like education, pharmaceuticals, travel, hospitality. Uh, there could be many ways that we could interact with India. Uh, and in fact, last week there was a 500-page report that came out from the Australian government talking about how we engage better with India. Um, so I think we're just at the beginning of that journey. Okay, and, and so that report, what what was sort of the conclusion uh, of that? Uh, the conclusion was they looked at uh, various industries and various industries in which Australia can engage better uh, with India. I think with China, it's a fairly easy relationship. Uh, with India, there's uh, probably several areas, given a very young and significant population that has uh, very differing requirements. There's definitely a role that Australia can play going forward. Yeah. And I think there's also probably uh, less knowledge about the Indian market in general and the economy in Australia, which is, you know, one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast. Um, but there has been a lot of talk about the reforms that uh, um, Prime Minister Narendra Modi has, has, has made. But can you give sort of a high level overview over some of these reforms that are relevant for investors here? Yeah, look, I think the reforms are about transforming India from forever being considered developing, emerging or frontier, however you look at it, towards uh, at least taking steps towards being more developed. And part of those reforms are dealing with things like uh, reducing corruption, uh, increasing the availability of credit uh, to local Indians, spreading the inequality of money to a broader uh, number of people, um, and then reducing the uh, opaqueness or increasing transparency in the economy such that uh, essentially it's easier to do business, it's easier to think about investing uh, because you've got more clarity on what your business is or what you're investing in. Yeah. If we delve a bit deeper into some of these uh, reforms, um, we look sometimes at technology and we talk about technology as you know, artificial intelligence, machine learnings and computers are going to rule the world. But sometimes I think it's good to take a step back and see what technologies from yesterday have already achieved and what they're still achieving. And and, and one of the uh, uh, ones that stand out is obviously the mobile phone. And um, in India, they're now using this to basically deliver more financial services to a, a wider audience and even to people that 
have never had access to bank accounts before. Um, how, how do you look at these reforms and, and, and what can we sort of expect uh, a little bit further down the road from this? Look, I guess if you're living in a developed economy like Australia or the US, then uh, reform is very different to what it might look like in a uh, you know very less developed economy, especially one with a large population. So when you take into account in India the number of smartphones today are close to 750 million. Last quarter's sales in India for smartphones was 25 million. Uh, Australia's smartphones in total are about 20 million. So again, this is com- growing from a very low base. Why are smartphones important in India? Not from the fact that it's a technology necessarily, but it's giving greater connectivity. Uh, it's allowing farmers of India f- perhaps to be able to uh, transact uh, on a digital platform rather than having to have a physical presence. So uh, things like opening, uh, there's been 200 million bank accounts opened in India over the last three years. There's been an increasing number of smartphones. And then to top it off, there's been a national identification card called the Aadhaar card, which now has 1.2 billion people biometrically uh, on that platform. If you think about that loop, it just allows people uh, to be able to have, uh, perhaps be presenceless, cashless, um, and all those things have significant impact in an economy like India. So that identification card helps them to take care of you know, the financial administrative side without necessarily having to be there in person and travel to all these branches? Exactly. So uh, in a recent trip to India, we traveled to some of the branches, uh, bank branches, and there's a transformation of perhaps thinking, uh, I'm a farmer, I have to drive three hours to the nearest branch. Uh, in that branch, I have to have a lot of paperwork and bureaucracy uh, to prove who I am. Uh, now you've got a format where they can perhaps pay some of their bills on a smartphone. Uh, they don't have to be present physically in the branch uh, to be able to open an account or ask for a loan. So uh, those have profound implications uh, in terms of India's growth. Another uh, favorite topic of everybody is tax, of course. Um, So India recently introduced uh, the GST, the Good and Services Tax. Um, Now, what are some of the benefits of introducing this for for particular trade? Yeah, well, one of India's Uh, problems is that its tax to GDP is very low. So essentially you need to increase that tax to be able to fund infrastructure uh, without having your budget deficit blow out. So the Indian government uh, since Modi came into power has exercised good discretion in trying to rein in the budget deficit. But the key of GST is you have 29 states with different taxes, levies, duties, which create complexity. When a foreign business says, I've got an India strategy, quite often you have to question what that is because each state has got its own strategy. Uh, So essentially the GST simplifies uh, a one nation, one tax. It will allow a truck to drive across five states in India and not stop at, you know, uh, tolls or octroi points and spend time going from one state to the other. So again, it has uh, profound implications on complexity and reducing the red tape, as well as increasing the institutionalization of tax. Yeah, and does that also make it more attractive for foreign investment to come into India and and reduce some of that red tape there? 
Absolutely, yeah. And, and the Modi government recognises I've got 100 million young people that are going to be employable in the next 10 years. The only way for me to employ them and create income equality is to make my country less corrupt, more transparent, allow the Apples, Googles, Microsofts, Walmarts to come onto their shores and set up facilities that will employ their youth. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a question in there about the, the Indian youth because over 30% of India's youth are not in employment, education or training, um, which of course leaves also a huge potential there. Uh, what has created that environment and what could we do to get them into the workforce? Yeah, if you look at India's history, it's really emerged uh, where uh, you know, it's an agrarian economy. So even today, over 65% of the population lives in rural locations. And therefore, employment statistics can be thrown out the window a little bit because most people work for the family business and are not sort of in a salaried role. Now, what will happen over the next 10 to 20 years is urbanisation will be significant. By 2030, you'll have 600 million Indians urbanising, which is a significant number. And uh, as a result, you'll see uh, perhaps a, a shift towards more organised formats. So India today, if you look at retail, for example, 90% is unorganised and only 10% is organised. So that change will be significant. Yeah, yeah. So that 30% might be a bit overstated, yeah. but it also seems to signify this change where you have the shift from an agrarian uh, base to a more goods and services base and urbanizing. Absolutely. So in 1980, India and China had the same GDP. China went ahead in leaps and bounds because it chose the path of manufacturing and essentially exporting to the rest of the world at a cheaper price with a cheaper cost of labour. In India's uh, story, they went down the path of services. Now what they are focusing on is a campaign called Make in India, which essentially means manufacturing is important. It's only 18 to 20% of GDP at the moment. It needs to lift to 25. And that is what will create income equality. Um, uh, the youth of India going to a factory, building a widget, earning an income, buying goods and services, that's the thematic where the demographic dividend will then reap rewards. Yeah, and there's not that many countries in the world that have a favourable demographic. Uh, I think if you look around the world, even for China, it's that's hasn't that base to draw on of, of, of youth coming up to sort of provide a next base for for employers. Yeah, I mean, India has a bigger working age population than non-working age population, which is really the dividend as such. And, uh, you know, it's set to cultivate that over the next 25 years. Yeah. Now, one of the opportunities that, that Australian investors always uh, are interested in and, and also across the world is infrastructure. Um, but there's still some challenges in seeing these projects through and there's, there's basically still a bit of a lack of a proper institutional framework for awarding, approving, and also monitoring these large infrastructure projects. And one of the issues there is, I think, land acquisition and, and approvals. Is there any sort of progress made in this space? So when the Modi government came into power in 2014, they were a significant majority for the first time in 25 years. Uh, they've reformed quite a few things. One or two things that are left to do if uh, they win another term, which uh, happens in May 2019, is land and labour reforms. So that's where uh, a lot of the bottlenecks are. 
today when uh, the, the government is building six industrial corridors, uh, then essentially it's about land acquisition at the state level and the central government then brings operational expertise to it. And a lot of foreign uh, investors are being invited, including Australian super funds, uh, to participate on a PPP type of structure. This will definitely, or the, the flexibility and adaptability of it, will improve significantly once they can execute on the labour and land reforms. Yeah. So we're hopeful that uh, the next election uh, campaign of Modi will see that reform pace continue and infrastructure become a growth area rather than a bottleneck so far. Yeah, but that might still be a few years out then to see some uh, tangible projects there. Yeah, so the government lists uh, one trillion as a requirement for infrastructure spending in the next five years. They know that they can't fund that themselves, so they know foreign investors are needed to do that. And if you think about it, some of the other commodity-producing nations around the world have been allocating quite heavily to India. The Canadian Pension Fund has an office in Mumbai and has been a long-term investor in Indian infrastructure. So time for the Australians to get over there. Uh, we are definitely lagging on that front. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, if we look at the stock market in India, the National uh, Stock Exchange of India has uh, about 6,000 stocks listed on, on the exchange. How well are those covered by the global broking firms? Yeah, so the Indian stock market is about $3 trillion in uh, size, uh, Australian dollars. Um, 40% of that is owned by local uh, founders. So they're reluctant sellers because the growth is quite strong. 6,000 listed companies, 2,000 of those would trade daily. Some of the others might trade by appointment. Um, the top 1,000 stocks will take you to about $150 million Australian dollars market cap. Global brokers cover really 200 stocks. So the opportunity of investing is in India and I'm not saying the top 200 companies aren't very attractive, but is also about finding companies that are going to be tomorrow's leaders, where there's real growth happening from just things like, I'm buying motorcycles, I'm buying underwear, I'm buying biscuits. You know, simple stories. For us, it's hard to fathom, but in a market like India, the growth is phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, I mean one of the reasons I ask it is because we often hear about, you know, Small caps, one of the reasons why there might be a bit of a premium there is because it's just a less well-researched area. Um, and so if you look at the, uh, the stock exchange in India, there might be a similar uh, problem there where there's just not a lot of coverage, which leaves a lot of opportunity there. Is this, do you think that's the case? Yeah, I think one thing investors should uh, think about when investing in markets like uh, probably India and China is that the discovery of price given it's a more inefficient market, will mean there's a lot of opportunities. Uh, it also means when there is a bullish environment, the outperformance is likely to be high. Why is that? Because that's an environment where the buy side tends to know the company better than the sell side because the sell side is not covering some of those companies. So typically in that environment, uh, the, the street numbers in terms of earnings will be a less uh, or less transparent than perhaps the guidance the buy side has. So there's some interesting quirks that are definitely worth investigating when investing in markets like this. But if you're investing in small and mid caps, you should have a, uh, 
five, seven year plus horizon and be able to sleep at night without thinking about it every every yeah. quarter or month. Yeah, yeah. Now, everybody always likes to talk about stocks. Uh, what are some of your more favorite stocks in India? Yeah, so look, I think uh, one of our top, well, our top holding at the moment is a company called Sun Pharmaceuticals. So I'll talk about that and how that's uh, an India thematic, but perhaps a different thematic to what some are used to, which is consumption. Sun Pharmaceuticals is uh, one of the largest generic drug manufacturers in the world. Uh, healthcare companies in India have traded at a premium to the market, essentially because you know it's a it's a high margin, uh, high growth industry. Typically, some of these businesses, uh, you know, can source more of their revenue from overseas because India, with a labor cost advantage, has been able to, uh, once a drug rolls off the patent, be able to manufacture that drug and export it to the rest of the world. What the th- and last year, healthcare took a bit of a tumble because several Indian companies uh, had FDA observations made at their plants in terms of just check these things and the market interpreted that as negative. Uh, so we had been increasing our exposure. And what we're finding now is these companies are increasing their R&D to sales, which is actually meaning that they are starting to go to the FDA and lodging their own application. And we think they'll go back to a premium status in the market. So Sun Pharma is part of that theme, and we have close to 6% of our fund in that stock. Yeah. Now, when you look at the Australian market, there's, there's a heavy reliance on, on the financials and on the resources. Is there a similar case in the Indian market? Because when I look at some of the holdings, um, there, there, there seems to be also a few banks in there. Is that is that similar dominant? Yeah, look, if you look at the index, let's say the MSCI India, the largest sector would be 21 22%. So it's a fairly well spread. The big industries are... Uh, information technology, as you would expect, um, banking and finance for sure. Uh, additionally, consumption stocks are quite significant. And they have industries that Australians don't have an abundance of, which is healthcare, consumption, IT. And what are some of the attractions of, of the Indian banks? Yeah, so the Indian banks, you can split them into two. One is the private sector banks, and one is the government-owned uh, public sector banks. The public sector banks have had some issues because of legacy, because they, uh, in 2007, as you know, everything was booming and capacity was being built, a lot of these uh, banks have overlent to uh, entrepreneurs who are perhaps a little bit too ambitious. And so some of the NPA problems today have to be dealt with. And one of India's big reforms uh, of the Modi government is a bankruptcy code, which has actually meant they're dealing with some of the issues today. Um, however, the private sector banks, there's a huge opportunity. They don't have the same legacy. Opening 200 million bank accounts, household debt to GDP is 9% compared to Australia's 120. So there's substantial opportunities to cross-pollinate yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, and grow uh, your, your product base just simply by opening a bank account for a start. Yeah, you just mentioned the uh, the bankruptcy code. I think that has been quite a significant development as well because previously there was a bit of an issue with uh, Phoenix activity, um, which pretty much I think this code will get rid of. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so there's uh, many things that can improve within banking. Um, you know, 
even the public sector banks perhaps don't have the best uh, governance structure and you know due diligence and operational capabilities. So all that needs to improve. But the bankruptcy code is essentially saying in India previously, if you had a bad debt, perhaps it was easy to walk away from it, or you just prolonged it until you didn't have to pay. Uh, what we have now with the bankruptcy code is once the debt is identified as a bad debt, you have 270 days before you can either sell it to an asset reconstruction company or take a haircut and essentially say, okay, that's a bad debt, I have dealt with it now and moved on. And we think that is going to eventually create a much better system and also uh, allow some of these banks to start lending again, which is crucial for growth. Yep. And then you mentioned also the IT and technology sector. Now, of course, everybody focuses on China and these massive companies that have basically sprung up in, in, in not a very long time. Mm. Is there any potential in India that we see a dominance of, of technology company? Yeah, so India's IT industry was, uh, you know, fantastic over the late 90s and early 2000s. It grew at a substantial pace and most of that growth came from U.S. firms growing and cutting their costs. We know what's happened with the S&P and how 6% annualized growth over the last 20 years has turned into uh, still a substantial price appreciation. And that's because, uh, you know, a lot of these firms have been able to reduce their costs, typically by outsourcing to Indian IT firms, uh, which have specialized in, uh, you know, having... Uh, their employees move to the offshore location and be part and parcel of that cost dropping exercise. Now, in 20 years of servicing these global clients, what's happened is these firms have been great at identifying and consulting about some of the issues that these firms may face. So the opportunity for Indian IT firms going forward is they're starting to talk about digital, artificial intelligence, the same sort of things that perhaps uh, some of the more well-known companies we know that originate in the US or the UK might talk about. And I think uh, you know the opportunity is significant because they're embedded in the system of most of these global companies. I will say buying Indian IT stocks may not necessarily be an India play because over 90% of their revenue comes from offshore, but they're still great companies that are domiciled in India. Yeah, yeah. And so what are some of the platforms that Indian consumers themselves use? I mean, we see how in, in just three years, WeChat has pretty much dominated China. Are, are there any similar platforms that, that have sort of an India-wide uh, coverage? Uh, that's only just starting to build. Typically, Indians use Facebook, WhatsApp, uh, all the same things, LinkedIn, that we might use. Uh, the ecosystem for you know uh, development in this space is, in, is increasing, but it's typically been through e-commerce type scenarios. So if you think about it, logistics, when you've got 1.3 billion people traveling even to the shopping center, takes a lot of time. So Indians have adapted quickly to using e-commerce. Uh, and you would have seen earlier this year Walmart acquire India's largest e-commerce platform called Flipkart for about 16 billion. So it's a fantastic way for Walmart to play the India story. And we think out of this will spurn a substantial amount of entrepreneurial activity and the development as such of platforms across India. Yeah. Do you think that this is also partly a uh, feature because of the language? I mean, in China... 
there's much more a potential develop a domestic product, partly probably because of censorship in terms of internet activity from the government there, but also partly because of the language. And within India, it's easier to adopt English-based platforms. Do you think that plays a role? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, Indians are primarily speaking English. Uh, yeah, um, you know, if not as a first language, as a second language. So, and it's fairly widespread. So essentially, uh, you know, using a Facebook, they, they want to assimilate to what people are doing in the US or the UK. So it is different in terms of its ties with the developed world than what China is. Yeah. Now, another issue that uh, comes to the fore as well for institutional investors is always um, ESG. And um, I think with India, it, it's fair to say that, that governance can sometimes be an issue. Uh, we spoke a little bit about corruption. How, how much progress has been made in recent years? So I would say there's probably issues with governance in every country, but more so in the developing countries, uh, given you know uh, we're coming from a nascent stage and development of the capital markets and increasing market efficiency. Uh, in India, I would say there is issues with governance, but the companies that are exercising better governance, global practices, Infosys, for example, one of India's largest IT firms, has one of the best governance structures in the world. And uh, these companies are getting a premium multiple. So across the board, what I'm seeing as a trend in emerging markets is governance is an obvious premium because global investors are saying, I'll sacrifice a little bit of valuation to get a company that I understand and is transparent, doesn't have so many uh, cross shareholdings, is a simple one to understand. Yeah. And to just give sort of a, an anecdotal evidence, in, in, in some areas there, there's a lot of progress being made. And I, I had this example about um, in Australia, we, re- we recently got rid of plastic bags at supermarkets, mm-hmm. single-use plastic bags. And it was funny because there was an article on the BBC that said, oh, there's this, you know, real upset about this and they can't get plastic bags. And there was a really bit of a, a mindset that had to shift, um, which basically came down to one single type of plastic bag. Um, and then I think recently in India, there was an entire state that banned plastic altogether. In the state, there was a problem where about... 1,200 tonnes of plastic waste was produced every day and they're hopefully trying to reverse some of this and, and clogging up the systems. And they actually put in fines in place for if you still um, use plastic and litter it. And so it goes all the way up from, say, 100 Australian dollars to $500 and three months in imprisonment, which is, you know, pretty steep penalty. Um, but is that reflective of how people's attitudes are changing towards environmental issues or is that still very much at the back burner? Yeah, look, India as a country is changing. You know, uh, the population is younger. The the average age of India is is close to 29. Um, And that means people are more and more patriotic and more and more understanding uh, over time of Uh, you know, things that need to be a social transformation. It is very difficult to change culture within a generation. So essentially, I think these uh, steps that are being put in place are the right 
uh, step. That state that you mentioned is the state I lived in called Maharashtra, which yeah. Mumbai is a major city in with 20 million people. And I know every time there is significant rainfall during a monsoon, uh, the drains get clogged and water stays in place for a long time. So it's really then about a social understanding of what the impacts are. And what I find generally is there is a strong, uh, you know, parochialism of Indians towards India increasingly. Um, So uh, I think, you know, uh, definitely these things uh, over time people will want to adopt. Well, thank you very much for this interview. Much appreciated. Thanks, Walter. Uh, It's great to uh, talk to you and uh, we love educating people about India. So uh, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.